name's Todd, um, one of the pastors here and one of the elders, and uh, just excited if you're someone that's new this morning to have you. Um, our heart for you is just what our purpose statement says, that today you would get an accurate view of God. We believe the, the greatest thing on this planet is for us to see God accurately, and so today we'll, we'll pray that for you. We, the reason we teach from the Word of God is because we really believe that the most accurate way that God describes himself is... Our, articulated out of the Word of God. We get a clear picture of Him, and so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to grab our Bibles, and we're going to dive into them. But um, this week, uh, I just had a... I don't know if you've ever had one of those just really good weeks where it just seemed like you you saw God doing different things, and and so I was getting to the end of my week, and I'm like, oh, it's been a pretty good week. And um, we met Thursday night. My neighborhood gets together on Thursday nights, and so we were just... It's just one of those fun nights. You know, after you've been around people for a little while, you just got relationship with them, you enjoy them. And so I finished that night then with a really good friend. He came over and we just talked life. And I woke up the next morning and I get a phone call from somebody in our neighborhood and said, you wouldn't believe this. You remember my niece that I brought with me last night to, to meet together as a neighborhood? I said, yeah. He goes, she came to know Jesus Christ. And I just sat there just like, <clears throat> yeah, yay God. And he just, he goes, yeah, you know, we've, we've explained to her the gospel, but he, he goes, there was something about being with our group there last night where we, she got to see the gospel. See, one of the things we're trying so hard to do as a church is we do want to accurately articulate what the gospel of Jesus is. We do. But we also believe that God just has this phenomenal way of taking people and putting them together to accurately portray the gospel through how they love each other and care for one another. And so when she showed up, she said, man, they, they cared for me. They didn't judge me. They didn't do all these different things. And so it's just interesting. It could have happened anywhere. I mean, God uses small groups. He uses Bible studies. He uses all kinds of things where people gel together in such a way where people not only hear an accurate gospel, but they see an accurate gospel. And that's why we've been in the Pentateuch. We do believe that, that one of the main things that's, that's starting to happen out of, the, out of the Pentateuch is this idea that God is wanting to put a group of people together in a certain place, which is the crossroads of the world, so that he can show them off. He believes his message isn't just a message that's articulated through the law. And so we see through the Pentateuch how he gave the laws, this, this way of understanding who he is and how he's called them to live. But he's done this so that this group of people, when they land in Judea, he wants to show off what his people are supposed to be like. And all of the book of the Pentateuch is leading towards this point, towards Deuteronomy, where finally at the very end you're going to see the people of Israel are going to cross over finally into this land and God is going to put them there for a purpose and he's going to make his people this people that he can just show off. And we've learned about it in all kinds of different ways. We looked at it through Genesis. What, is, what does God look like in Genesis? What does he look like in Exodus, uh, Leviticus? We looked at the sacrificial system. We looked at holiness. Last week we looked at this idea of God being a God that really does want to set them on mission, but there are consequences for looking at God and saying, no thanks God, I'm going to do what I want to do. And we talked about it, though, last week, that while there's consequences, and I love this idea of God, is that while there are consequences to my sin, and like David talked about, he said, look, my sin is ever before me, there's also this beautiful picture of God that he has the capacity and power to take our failure and use it to bring glory to himself. 
That's how amazing God is. And the thing we've been trying to convey through all of this, you can't stop our God. There is nothing that you can do to stop our God. He is the king of the universe. He has put all things together. And while all these different things that happen on our world happen in a way that we wonder what's going on, God never exits his throne. And he is, throughout time, going to bring it all to the end where I promise you, and I can't wait for the day after a shout and a trumpet, we are going to all be whisked away into this new heavens and new earth. And we're going to stand in front of Jesus. And he's going to say, see, I told you so. I won. That's what we're moving towards. And we serve a God that can't be stopped on that cosmic level. And I love how the fact that Paul talks about it in Philippians 1.6, the one who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it. He has a goal, not only in this, this grand level with his people, but in each of our lives to shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus. That was the purpose of the cross, was was that we would be drawn to him. And when Matt talked about holiness, is that now being drawn to him because Jesus has opened this way, we can now go to that God. And as we draw near to him, we begin to look like him and walk like him. We gain his heart, we gain his mind. And we become these people, true humanity, what God desired us to be. And the thing that I think is so important is today especially, you can go ahead and go with me to Numbers 21. That's where we're going to be today. But the purpose of everything God uses is to get us to that point. And one of the things that we're going to really key in on today because it's all throughout the Pentateuch is how God uses pain and suffering to get us to get our eyes off of the things of this world and to get our eyes onto him. See, I think right now, especially in our topsy-turvy world, we're wondering, why? What's going on, God? What's happening? Why does this world seem to be going chaotic? And the thing you've got to understand is God is in heaven going, I got this. I got it. It's going to get a little bumpy. Strap in. Hebrews 10, you better draw near to me. You better hold firm to the faith. You better get together with unbelievers because I promise you it's going to get bumpy here. But God seems to do some of his most beautiful and best work when it gets a little bumpy. And so that's why we as Christians, we should be the most joyful people on the planet because we know when things get bumpy, it's like, uh uh-oh, watch out. God's about to do something. And what he's doing here is, in, in, in Numbers 21, as he is, he's going to use this idea of pain, and he's, he's going to bring it into the story to use it for his glory, to get this group of people focused, off their focus of what's going on here and back onto him. And so join me. Let's look at, at, that, uh, at uh, Numbers 21, and we're going to start uh, in verse 4, and I should probably turn there. Numbers 21, and look at verse 4. It says this. From Mount Hor, which is where they had gotten to that point, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, which is just going up into the promised land. And look at this word. And the people became impatient on the way. Now you've got to understand something that's going on here. In order to, to, to sense and know why these people are becoming impatient, imagine if I came to you this morning and said, hey, i got some great news. All of you are going to join me on a 40-year venture. Huh? Not only that, but okay, here's the kicker of it. The plus. 
We're going to take a trip from Simi Valley to beautiful Baker, California. (laughs) Oh, but it didn't stop there. No. We're going to head north towards Death Valley. Today only. And that's not all. We're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. And you've got to understand something. At this point, all the things that they've gone through, there had been rebellion. There had been these amazing things where Aaron's staff suddenly buds up into these flowers. Moses loses his place in the promised land at this point. Uh, Aaron had died. All these things had taken place, and they're just this group of people. And just imagine yourself for a second. The same clothes, the same food, the same people, 40 years. Around and around. And we wonder why they're not zippity doo Come on, let's go, you know? I mean, they're like, really, we're going to go around Edom? And the idea was that they're up in Kadesh Barnea, and we're going to go all the way down here. We're going to come around, and they're like, dude, let's just go. Just kill us out in the desert. Get on with it. In fact, the way that they talk about it is, is that the way when he uses this word, if you look in verse 4, it says, and the people, the, 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 the Hebrew there literally means to be these, this at the innermost being of who they are, at their soul. They're just fatigued. They're worn out. They're faint-hearted. They're discouraged. And they're walking along, and they're following this, this pillar of smoke and pillar of fire. In fact, one guy described it this way. I don't know if you know a guy named T.E. Lawrence. He's better known as Lawrence of Arabia. But in the early 20th century, he wrote about this very area that they were going through. And here's what he said. This desert is full of hopelessness and sadness. It's deeper than all the open deserts we had crossed. There was something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted desert. He said not only that, but he wrote later on in one of the books that he had put together, he said the plague of snakes which had been with us since the first entry into the desert today rose to a memorable height and became a terror. This year the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders and cobras and black snakes. By night movement was dangerous and at last we found it necessary to walk with sticks beating the bushes while we stepped warily on the, with our bare feet. They got so on our nerves that the boldest of us feared to touch the ground. Sound fun? They're frayed. They're worn out. And they just want to be done. Sound familiar? See, when you frame it like that, and I know so many of us are in different places in, this, in our life right now, but we live in right now, I feel like a country that's just frayed and worn out, and we just kind of want out. And we're looking to Washington going, fix us. And God's going, they can't. As they wander around the desert, they're just worn out. In fact, the way that I would do it is, is just, and I've always seen this in people's lives, is that exhaustion and even in stress tend to lead to just absolute spiritual dryness. They're just dry. Now, the dangerous thing about it, if you look at verse 5, is this. Look what happens from there. 
And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Sound familiar? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I've always found that whenever people get dry spiritually, they move towards this thing of blame. Dryness always seems to have fault finding. And the thing that happened with them is, is it became against God and against Moses. Why? What are we doing here? What are you trying to accomplish? In fact, the way that they put it also is we loathe. The, the, the idea is of detest. We can't stand this manna and this quail that you've given us. And we look at them and go, oh, dude, just suck it up. But just think about something. One of my favorite foods on the planet is steak and potatoes. There is nothing better than a good cooked porterhouse. I swear I could eat it for almost any meal. But could you imagine if I woke up this morning and my wife went, Hey, baby, I made you a porterhouse and potatoes. And I go home today and she goes, Good news. I made you a porterhouse and baked potatoes. Now, the second time I'd be like, well, that's cool. Porterhouse and baked potatoes. And then the, that night I walk home and I just finished the last service and she goes, baby, I made you a porterhouse and baked potatoes. <laughs> I wake up the next morning. <laughs> porterhouse and baked potatoes. <laughs> Lunch, porterhouse and baked potatoes. Do you get my point? I mean, the first time they ate that manna, they're like, this is good stuff. Dang, you know, and they're going through that quail, they're like, mm. 40 years. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, can you imagine your kids sitting down at the table? What are we having for dinner, Mom? What we've had for 40 years. Quail and manna, kids. And so in some ways, you've got to understand something. We sometimes mock them, but can you imagine being them? In fact, they've even talked about it a little more. If you go to a Numbers 11, they talk about their desire for something else. Numbers 11, look at verse 5. They're, they're remembering what it was like in Egypt. And this is what they say in verse 5. Oh, we remember the Fish we ate in Egypt. Now, I hate fish, but I'm gathering if I had eaten all those things for a little while, I'd be like, oh, dang, fish. That costs nothing. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. They also did it in 20, verse 5. Go over just a few more pages. Just maybe a page back from where we are. Look at 20, verse 5. They were remembering back and they said, and why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. In other words, they're looking back and going, oh, cucumbers. I mean, you know you're desperate when cucumbers are like, dang. <laughs> we had Cucumbers. But the psychology of it is so interesting because the first thing they do is they look at God and it's like, why? Why? As if God is someone we can look at and do that with. 
then it moves to hopelessness. We might as well just die in this desert. And finally, it moves to self-absorption. We detest this miserable food. In fact, the way that that miserable food is put together, the Hebrew of it is horse fodder, horse feed. And in the middle of all of it, they became this group of people that was self-absorbed. People that lack contentment are some of the scariest people on the planet, and I've been there. Once you lack contentment, you are one of the most dangerous people on this earth. Because the psychology of it is you will move to that quickly, where you will then move from shaking your fist at God, why am I in this place at this time? Why, 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 why? And pretty soon everything will become about me. And the moment you become self-absorbed, you're a very dangerous person. They forgot that that this God that had pulled them out, this power to pull them out and sustain them. I mean, their clothes hadn't aged for 40 years. He had fed them for four decades in the midst of just this absolute desert. Even when they didn't deserve it, he was still there for them. It wasn't a reward. It was because he loved them. They were adept and and they were so good at being able to itemize their grievances, but in the midst of itemizing their grievances, they were this group of people that forgot to count their blessings and named them one by one. In fact, the way that God is almost looking at it is, is I have a bunch of complainers and complainers are a terrible invasion force. And the reason that I say this is that they chose to take what God had given them and they chose to turn it into a dirge a sad song. They were at this point, literally, where where they're looking at all of life and, and they didn't like what God had given them. They didn't like their lot. I want something different. When it's ever our kids like that, what do we do? Man, we, we give them a lesson in life. You see it in all kinds of different ways. But when people get to this point where they don't like their God-given circumstances, they become dangerous. They're the person that literally when they're unmarried, they want to get married. And once they get married, what do they want? Out. I always hear people, they're like, oh, I just wish I had kids. And I look at them and I go, you get the age, right? It looks so cute from a distance until they have diapers. (laughs) Until they're four and they start to think for themselves <laughs> until they're 11 and they ask you the dreaded, how did I get here, mom and dad? Until they're 16. Until they're 21. I've seen this a lot of times with people like, especially, I'll never forget this, man, people that didn't used to have a house. They're like, oh, I'm going to get into a house at all costs. I can't wait till I get my own home. Now people are like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this house, but I'm so far under, I want out. You see it with churches. Man, I don't like my church. I want to get to a different church. Only to find out that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Jobs. Remember back like four or five years ago when everybody's like, oh, my job stinks. I'm just going to move to the next job. Man, now it's like, McDonald's is hiring. I'll take it. There's these people that always are looking to the past and they miss the present or people that are always looking to the future and they miss the present. The thing that the Bible constantly conveys about them is that this group of people breeds discontentment. 
I will promise you, you find a discontent person and you start to hang around them long enough, you too will become discontent. And it was like a disease in the camp. What happened is the first person got discontent and then the second person, and it just became literally like the flu. It went through the whole camp and when it went through the whole camp and it infected it completely, God had to come in in a supernatural way. They missed the cool thing, especially like what I brought up last week, Psalm 1611, that, man, when, when we come to God, there's joy. And in the midst of even some of the most dire circumstances, God, when, when I'm near you, I'm in a phenomenal place. I find pleasures forevermore. And then God, being the good God, does what in verse 6? Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. My dad always used to have a joke with me, and I'd come in and I'd be complaining. And I'd be like, oh man, my arm hurts. He goes, you want me to kick you in the shin? And I'd go, why? He goes, because then it'll hurt in your shin, not in your shoulder. But what God's going to do is, is he's going to get this, all this group of people that are complaining, and he's like, you want something to complain about? And into the camp came pain. Now, on one level, you'd think, wow, he's a bad dad. Why would ever a dad allow this to happen? Because you've got to understand something is this wasn't a sanitized event. If you've ever seen somebody that's been bit by a snake, it ain't pretty. In fact, the idea of them being fiery serpents probably has this idea of just the fever and the chills that these people went through as they walked through being bitten by these snakes and the death that was all around them. But God knew if he was going to ever deal with this sickness of discontentment, he had to allow something painful to come into him. Now, that's not the only reason God uses pain. There's all kinds of reasons why God allows pain in. But one of the reasons that God allows pain into his people is to get their eyes off of the wrong thing and back onto him. In fact, one of the things that as I was thinking through this, the snakes weren't exactly the problem. God was there using these snakes to get their attention. Not only that, but, but some of us, I think, learn to cope with petty trials by encountering greater ones. Um, God has this way that adversity is, this, is this, not this lonely visitor, that when we, when we experience adversity, it's usually accompanied by these insights that we don't get any other time. And God allows this to come into his camp for a purpose. And look at verse 7. Why? Suddenly this group of people came to Moses. Don't you love that? Moses, you're the worst leader on the planet. God, what are you doing? And suddenly when all hell is breaking loose, who do they want? Moses. I mean, part of me, if I was Moses, like, what do you want now? Hmm? But they suddenly needed Moses. Suddenly they didn't want their little complaining friends anymore, did they? In the midst of adversity, have you ever noticed that your complaining friends kind of go to the wayside and who you look for is a man of God? They didn't want a complainer anymore. They didn't want somebody that was going to, oh, yeah, this stinks, these stupid snakes, man. You're, when you're dying, when it's life and death, it's like, yeah, they stink. Where's Moses? I mean, in the middle of all of it, that didn't matter. What you wanted is you wanted men and women of God. You were going to find people, and especially Moses, the friend of God. That's who I'm going to come to. When trouble hit, that's who they came after. 
they suddenly realized that their fellow complainers had no value whatsoever to add to their life. The issue of life and death, suddenly it's like they could care less if they had Grey Poupon at that moment. They wanted God to save them. And I've always found that what adversity does is it helps move us from the trivial to the crucial. It moves us away from the things that don't matter to the things that matter most. And here's what Moses did when they came to him, and I love this. Moses prayed. Don't you love that? They come to him suddenly and they say, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord, we've spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take these serpents from us. And I just love this simple statement to end it. So Moses prayed for the people. Godly men and women don't try to solve problems. They've learned that problems get solved on their knees. All Moses did was get down on his knees. And here's Moses' prayer. I love this. Or he prayed, sorry. And God responded to him and said this to Moses. Make a fiery serpent, he says, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a, pers- if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent. And the idea was he would live. Now on one level, you'd think like, I can imagine Moses sitting there going, okay, make a serpent. Why again? Make a symbol of what is afflicting them and put it on a pole. Now Moses on one level had to go, okay, God, I'll do it. But on another level, it must have just been like, why? And on so many levels, I think in one way, if God would have just removed the snakes, I think the people would have gone right back to what it was before. They'd been like, okay, cool. It was just an anomaly. If God would have said, well, I want you to make a little salve to put on them, then they would have thought, ah, oh, it's the salve. But in the end, what it was for all these people is that God stuck this pole in it, and the only thing that they had left to do was to look at that pole. It was absolutely miraculous, and they couldn't explain it any other way other than God has done a work here. And what God was seeking to do, and what God, I believe, is seeking to do with us people in this room right now, as things get a little rough and rocky inside of our country, is he's begging us, just look to me. Get your eyes off of all the stuff that's around you. Get your eyes off of all the things that seem to be so chaotic. Look to me. To a world that's dying. We need to be priests that come into this world that as they're wondering what in the world is taking place all around them, pretty soon they're not going to want to come to government anymore. They're not going to want to go to all these people anymore. What they're going to look for is godly men and women and they're going to come to them and say, what must I do to be saved? And we're going to be able to be this group of people that say, look to God. Just look. See, I believe our country is entering into a point in which we are going to be in a great spot. Don't you love how God has just slowly taken away our our little comfort blankets? I'll take that, and I'll take that. And after a while, all we're going to have left to do is to cry out to God. And we're this group of people. We're to be like the Moses in this world that literally when all hell is breaking loose, we're able to come into it and just come down and pray to God. God isn't asking us to solve problems right now. God isn't asking us to do all these different things. God is asking us to pray. As you read the news, don't worry. Be happy. No, don't be happy. Just don't worry. 
Get on your knees and go, God, what are you going to do? See, the question is not why, God. The question is, God, what are you doing here? God, you must be setting us up for something big. Things are getting rough. Things are getting rocky. You must be doing work amongst your church. And in verses 8 and 9, his whole point is, would you just look to me? Go with me to John 3. John, he's gonna, Jesus uses this passage in a pretty interesting way. We always know 3.16, but rarely do people know what happens in 3.14 and 15. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking about what it, it means to be born again And Nicodemus is struggling through this whole idea of what it means to be born again. And in verse 14, Jesus says this to me, to him. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All we are is a group of people that literally are looking out at our world And we're taking the cross, which is such a strange thing to the world. We're taking it, this idea that the cross, we to us it means one thing, it means life, but you gotta understand something that the cross to most people, especially at the time of Christ, meant death. And we're grabbing this, we're grabbing this truth of what Jesus Christ has done, and we're thrusting it out into the world, and we're saying, Look to him. In fact, John 3.16 that follows it up, John 3.16 has its foundation in 3.14 through 15 when he's talking about just this, this whole idea of what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, whoever finally takes their eyes off of all these things that are out there and looks to this sacrifice of Jesus, this one on the cross who came to pay the penalty of people's sins, even in the midst of chaos, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he's continually calling us as this group of people, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Christ at all costs and in all ways while the world seems to be doing all the things that it's doing. Don't focus here. Keep focused on that. In fact, one of the things we're going to be doing as a church is that I've found that that people, even inside of their marriages, aren't looking to Christ. And if you go to John 3, 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But look at this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. With this group of people saying there's only one way. There's only one way in our marriages. There's only one way inside of our relationships. We need so desperately. We're about ready to do a marriage conference here, and for those of you that are married, our whole heart would be that I know some of you are really struggling, and some of you aren't, but we still need to be this group of people that keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So real quick, what I want to do is I want to show you a video. Uh, It's only like a couple minutes long, and in it, just to give you a small taste of what we're going to be trying to accomplish here uh, coming up in uh, September and October. So if you could go ahead and hit play. The point of that is, is just to say... That Jesus who died on the cross, that one who was lifted up, he saves. 
He doesn't just save us for eternity. He saves our marriages. He saves our relationships. He saves our families. But we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. We have to quit being these complainers, and we have to get our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith. And so we're going to be doing that at the end of September. If you'd like to come to the church, we're going to be doing it. Then also there'll be some people in small groups in various neighborhoods that'll be doing that. But our whole desire, whether your marriage is struggling or healthy, is that we would have people that would quit complaining about things inside of their marriage and start to be these people that in looking at Jesus become these true servants, these ones saved to truly be instruments of grace to the world. Also coming up in, October, in uh, September over Labor Day weekend, we're going to have groups of people that I also believe it's our job to be intercessors. And so we're going to be going to various schools all over Simi Valley to, for one purpose is to just pray for our schools. I think oftentimes we complain about them and moan about them, but let me ask you this question. Do you believe Jesus Christ can change our schools? That he can change marriages, but do you also believe that what we need is these groups of people coming and intercessing on behalf of our community that God can do work, whether you do homeschool or private school or public school. I don't care what kind of school that you do or believe in, but do you believe that God can take what is a mess oftentimes of our schools and change them? And so we're going to be organizing that. And so we would love for you to be involved. But the thing that I end with is, is do you believe God can? The point of the Pentateuch is a God that can. But he's calling us to look at him. If you're that complainer right now that's living in that world of complaint and you're that dangerous person, you don't have to be. Today, Jesus is asking you to look to him. If you're complaining about our government or complaining about your marriage or complaining about your family or complaining about our church or complaining about whatever it is that you're complaining about, you don't have to. Jesus has saved you from that. If you'd like prayer for it today, we'd love to pray for you. If you're somebody that's like the Israelites that's just downtrodden, life is just worn on you and you're sensing yourself becoming a spiritually dry person, today we would love to pray for you in your spiritual dryness. If you're someone that's healthy right now and you walk with the Lord, would you please join Moses and be an intercessor? Beg God to do the miraculous. But more importantly, let's be a church that lifts up Jesus and looks to him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Father, forgive us for the complainers that we are, the self-absorbed people that we are. God, would you do a work in the life of all of us? work in the life of our marriages and our families and our relationships and our church. God, would you take out of us that spirit of, of complaint that is so self-absorbed and so dangerous, Father, and instead, would you replace it with something all new? I beg you, I believe your spirit can do it. I believe the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave can do that in this church and in these marriages and these families. God, do the miraculous. We believe you can. Would you please then also use our church that while our world seems to be so topsy-turvy, would, would we be such a church that so focuses on Jesus? And God, would you do that at all the other Bible-believing churches in Simi Valley? Would you do a work in, in all of them so that we all are this group that looks to you in such a way that while the world falls apart and government no longer has answers and the smart people no longer have answers, Father, would we in our community be a shining light that draws people to yourself because we have walked through it focused on your son, Jesus Christ. God, do the miracle that we can't please. In your precious name we pray, amen.